and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub. Series 8, Session 10. It's Thursday the 31st of March 2022. Welcome back to our Echo Network. This session is titled COVID Testing, Your Questions Answered. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from this morning. We um, pay our respects to elders past, present and commit to working together in a spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. We support self-determination for First Nations peoples and organisations and we'll work together on closing the gap. And don't forget to ask that key question. Do you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander with your patients? All right, well, happy two-year anniversary, everyone, half a COVID echo, um, and happy birthday, team. Two years ago, tweets from Italian ICU doctors, calls to action by WHO epidemiologists, and fears for family members sprung us all into action. With our late February GP refresher cancelled due to risks of a mass um, super spreading event in, um, in February 2020, the PHM workforce team, the leadership team, Kate Graham, Deb Freeman, Rachel Coward and I pulled together a new team to launch Project Echo, uh, the pandemic response series. And um, none of us, <laughs> I know I keep saying it, but we did not think we would be here two years later. Um, but you guys came along to seek out updates and knowledge about this novel virus and together we worked to make sense of the pandemic work for GPs and nurses in regional Victoria through case-based discussions here over Zoom. And here we are two years, 75 sessions later. Um, Anna, how many of those 75 have you been to? <laughs> Lee and Peter Atkinson as well. How many of the 75 have you been to? And it seems like we're still finding quite a lot to talk about. So um, I have to say thank you, everyone. It's been absolutely lovely getting to know you all. And I, I do look forward to a time when we might meet face to face. This morning's sessions will bring updates, uh, as always, and seek to answer your questions about COVID infections. How are we using rats in practice and what are the shortfalls? How might we use PCR this coming winter? Is serology useful? And what's going on behind the scenes with COVID surveillance? So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP, facilitating today's meeting. Uh, thanks to my ECHO team, Whitney, Fee and Zach. While I'm rambling on, do take time to jump on, scan the code and uh, evaluate our series. So we evaluate every session, as you know, but we also do a whole of series evaluation. We'd love any lovely quotes that you could give us. Um, some of you may know we're going to be presenting at the Safer Care Vic conference in um, about a month or two's time, and which we're really proud of. And uh, we'll be sharing um, the, the, the successes of ECHO. So if you've got any um, lovely quotes for us to use, we'd love to hear about that. And you can tell us in the evaluation. Welcome everyone for joining us from the West Vic regions and any visitors from out of our region, you're very welcome. Um, you know about the ECHO etiquette um, and you can catch up on content uh, I think we'll, we'll show you where some links are, um, you know, in the next coming months, if there's uh, information you'd like to backtrack on, everything's available to you as video podcasts, there's notes, slides, all the resources are on the website. And I think there's a slide at the end that shows you how to access those, particularly when it comes to things like prescribing antivirals. I know we've um, run several sessions on that, but, uh, you know, it may not be until you actually have that uh, patient in front of you that you know is eligible and you want to get a little bit more of a refresher. I'd encourage you to go back and have a look at the resources in the box. All right, so we head to the next slide. I think what's our learning outcomes for the um, whole series We're refreshed our aims. You'll see that uh, there's less mention of COVID and more mention of communicable diseases more broadly as we progress 
forward. I guess our public health units are starting to expand their remit. Um, but of course, we're hearing more about influenza and JEV and other things. RSV is going to be um, of interest as the um, weeks and months come on. So we'll talk broadly and we'll apply those um, that this content that we've been developing and knowledge we've been developing over the last two years more broadly to communicable diseases. Uh, so our session outcomes for today. Next slide, Whitney. Oh, okay, we'll come to that in a moment. So our agenda, what's on the agenda? So Kate's with us as always around uh, to, to, to talk to us about policy guidelines update and um, focus on priority population this morning. Um, we welcome Norm, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, uh, infectious diseases physician from Barwon Southwest Public Health Unit and Clinical Labs to um, provide a didactic on uh, rats, PCR, uh, serology. And I don't know if we talked about surveillance, so, so um, apologies if there was any little surprises there, but maybe a quick bit about surveillance. And all your questions answered. So I've tried to grab as many of those questions that you've had over the last few weeks and anything that comes up in the chat this morning. So make sure you pump that chat full of questions so that you feel satisfied as we head off in break. Now, Peter Atkinson is um, Peter with us this morning. I'm really delighted that Peter's going to present a case vignette. Peter's someone who I know you've been here many sessions, Peter, but I don't know if I've ever clocked your face. So I'm going to be really um, happy to see you this morning. Thanks for uh, your uh, very active participation in ECHO and I'm glad you can present your case this morning. And Naomi White will bring us a pitch in update uh, to round us off this morning. So with that, there's our uh, learning outcomes um, and we'll get underway. So over to you, Kate. Oh, quick Zoom poll. Um, we're going to throw this up. And this is a quick one as well. Even if you don't get a chance to evaluate, let us know what you'd like in next session. Who's going to launch the Zoom poll for us? Um, we will. Are we going team? Got that Zoom poll coming? Yeah, beautiful. Okay, that's going to come. You'll see that on your screen. Yeah, we go. Uh, give us a couple of ticks, multiple choice. Don't tick everything. That's not going to be helpful. Um, just tick the ones that you're interested in or any topics I haven't listed above that you want us to get a wriggle on and pop in the chat. Thanks for the happy birthdays, everyone. All right, over to you, Kate. Thanks. Yeah, it's definitely hard to believe that we've been here for two years. Um, and like two years ago, we we're in such a different place with our knowledge. Um, both of COVID and of public health in general. And so I think like, this is going to be a bit of a complicated sort of thing today rather than my usual sort of short, sharp stuff. But I think that's because COVID in itself has become a little bit more complex as we sort of explore how to merge COVID in to all the other public health and outcomes-based approaches that we should be using um, in primary care. So in thinking of things in terms of prevention and communicable disease prevention and our vaccines, um, we've got a bit more information, I think really reinforcing those fourth doses, um, the eligibility. Um, if you have a look at the link that we'll put in the chat in a minute, sorry, I forgot to put that up there. Um, just the fourth dose of Tayu sheet goes through everything in lots of detail. Um, it really goes through um, all the eligibility criteria. And what I really like about this sheet as well is that it goes through some of the reasoning as to why it's not a more open eligibility um, sort of app, uh, eligibility cohort as yet. Um, so in terms of that timing in relation to the third dose, there's more of a gap um, between that third dose and fourth dose than there is when you're thinking about that booster dose of the third dose. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind. So that's that four months rather than, you know, the three months when we were pushing to get everyone boosted by their Omicron peak. Um, 
So timing in relation to the influenza vaccine. And I think that's something that we really want to reinforce a little bit is that you can give it at the same time as the influenza vaccine. Whether you do so um, is going to relate <coughs> in um, to a few factors. So some of those factors will be about uh, your clinic and your clinic setup and whether you can run that influenza vaccine plus the COVID vaccine simultaneously if you've got the staff. Um, it'll relate to the patient themselves and whether that is possible for them to have both at the same time. It'll relate to the access of the influenza vaccine. So if your clinic's had it stock delivered yet, um, but it also relates um, to that sort of peak onset of protection. I mean, not peak onset, but peak of protection really when you're looking at influenza and boosting. Um, and I think in terms of that fourth dose, it's not really, um, this is sort of more moving down to their children as well. When you're thinking about influenza, I think for the younger age groups who may, it may be their first year thinking about influenza vaccines where you do need those two doses, I think the advice for them is really clear. You get that first dose in as soon as possible so that you can have that two dose um, course for winter. Um, whereas with other um, cohorts in older age groups, you wanna make sure that that protection from influenza is going to be over the peak of our season. Uh, we are starting to see influenza cases within Victoria. Um, there are aged care facilities now who are experiencing influenza and COVID at the same time. Um, so that's something to sort of keep in mind for respiratory outbreaks in general, uh, in general practice, but mostly in those high risk settings. So uh, residential aged care and disability residential care. Um, so, and Anna's mentioned something really key in the chat, um, which is the fee issue. So the COVID vaccines have to be bulk billed, um, whereas often that private billing um, may come into place for um, people having influenza vaccines. So also something to think about as well. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. So pre-submitted question, which was just around residents of disability residential care and those who attend respite residential care. So there's um, sort of some quite clear wording in the guidance um, around the fact that it has to be residential care facilities. Um, and sort of in that, it's around that sort of sleeping over, I think model more so than the day respite. But I think those who are eligible for respite residential care or who may be planning to have respite residential care over winter or things like that, I think that they would be an appropriate group. And I think ultimately it's a target advice and guidance. Um, and so we follow that for the moment. In their guidance, they have flagged that they're really deeply considering all other groups. Um, they have also sort of mentioned in their um, sort of chat the thought about that waning immunity, when that immunity is going to wane and the issues around potentially giving um, more vaccines and what that may do for your immunity longer term. So it's definitely a cohort that we want to protect. Um, but I think that to a degree, we're limited by the wording of the guidance. Um, and I'll put that in the chat when I'm finished, if it hasn't already. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. 
So back to sort of where we're thinking about things in terms of communicable disease prevention, um, that hierarchy of control, our public health measures, which we don't have a lot of control over, but we often put in place, um, and our environmental measures, our admin measures, these are all the things that sort of keep providing all our extra pre um, protection. Um, and then when we come down to our personal measures, personal protective equipment, they're sort of narrower in under the umbrella of the larger sort of controls. So I think that um, whenever you're thinking, oh, is this going to make a difference? Think wider in terms of what other things you have around you that will also make a difference sort of within your clinic, within your environment and for individuals as well. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So the screening and testing update. Um, so in terms of rapid antigen testing, I think one of the key things that we really want to sort of flag again and again is um, reminding patients about reporting their rat tests. Um, because as GPs, we're not seeing those PCR results coming across our desk anymore as they did variably during um, the PCR only testing phase. Um, and reminding patients that if they're symptomatic and rat negative, um, to continue to sort of isolate or have a PCR test um, in terms of some of the um, issues that normal we'll talk about later. That isn't part of guidance, but I think it's part of being sensible. So I think there's that issue with guidance where the guidance from um, sort of all the public health and department of health says, you know, you only have to have, if you're symptomatic, you have to have a rapid antigen test. Um, but it's all those workplace kind of things that if you're sick, don't go to work. And I think that people often forget that. They think about sort of being COVID negative and then they're fine to sort of leave home and everything is okay. But I think particularly as we come into winter and we've got more winter viruses circulating, the potential of influenza to be about, um, I think that sort of reinforcing those sort of sensible messages of stay home if you're sick, uh, that we really shouldn't have to keep reinforcing as much as we do. Um, are still really useful. Um, and I think we'll look at it um, again in the sort of talk as more of a, like that tool for triaging in primary care. Um, but the false positive rule I wanted to remind everyone about. So if you have a rapid antigen test that is positive in an individual without um, any contacts with anyone with COVID that they know of and without any symptoms, if you have a PCR test done within 48 hours, um, that will then, and that PCR test is negative, that will then be counted as a false positive rapid antigen test. And so that's really important to remember, particularly sort of looking at our cohorts who undergo regular screening. So the children in particular in school settings. Um, and that's sort of something we'll talk about a bit more too. So travel is somewhere where rapid antigen testing is still going to be used. That supervised rapid antigen testing as we're booking more overseas travel. I've booked my first flights overseas for September. So don't plan any big echoes then. Um, that's sort of where you have the rat testing at the airport on the day of travel. Um, if you have had a um, recent COVID infection, it's worthwhile exploring that a little bit, um, particularly in terms of if you are rapid antigen test positive or that chance of a rapid antigen test positive, having that um, definite proof from a GP letter that says that you've had COVID within a recent amount of time. <laughs> 
I said, Bianca's put in a chat that the pandemic will be over by September. <laughs> we thought the pandemic would be over in weeks in 2020 and that I'd be able to reschedule my Spanish trip that I was meant to leave on in March 2020. Um, but this is the reschedule, so we'll see how we go. Um, PCR tests, um, the eligibility at present is still sort of widely open to people who request PCR testing. Um, we recommend, sort of from a departmental perspective, it's recommended that rapid antigen test is um, the priority um, way that people should be testing initially. Um, but I think that this is somewhere else that we need to sort of be thinking in terms of our higher risk populations um, to sort of confirm rapid antigen tests or to look at symptoms um, that are rapid antigen test negative. Um, so PCR testing eligibility, it's within eight weeks of um, COVID infection for rapid antigen tests and for um, PCR tests, there is no requirement to have asymptomatic or screening tests. Um, so looking at then um, some of the Medicare things, I was having a look online because there were some questions about Medicare eligibility for um, PCR tests um, in practice and repeat PCR tests in particular. And it was really hard to sort of nut that out. Um, and so that's something to sort of also consider as well. Um, and if anyone has any information, um, there's, there's no sort of real lockout period from a sort of health perspective in regards to eligibility, but I'm not sure under Medicare rules um, in terms of the eligibility for this or for multiplex PCR testing. So I'm sorry I don't have those answers and I'm going to delve a bit deeper and see if I can find them. But if somebody does have the answers, that would be really helpful. So in my views on the multiplex PCR tests, there's no sort of overarching guidance on this yet. But I think what you want is when you've got um, an outbreak, um, particularly or symptoms, particularly in high-risk settings, um, and people are rapid antigen testing negative across a cohort, or even if they're rapid antigen testing negative and they're symptomatic um, in the context of a COVID outbreak, um, I think those are where you want to sort of do a PCR, but also thinking about adding on the viral multiplex PCR now, thinking about that um, potential to have two different infections within a facility at once. Um, serology, again, I would sort of recommend that um, for serology that you sort of be seeking advice from specialists um, and from public health before requesting this because it's becoming less of a useful prospect um, just due to lots of vaccinations. Surveillance testing is still happening. So um, there's surveillance of the PCR samples um, taken in general, just to have a look at what um, variants we are getting within Australia and within Victoria. Wastewater sampling is still taking place, um, but interestingly, sort of wastewater sampling is being used. Um, we're sort of beginning to use it in some of the justice settings. So within prisons and things like that to monitor um, more sort of closely in those areas because you can actually get wastewater testing that is broken down to sort of individual facilities. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. 
So in terms of access to assessment, and this is something that is a primary care sort of responsibility in terms of being able to communicate this to our patients um, and being able to assist them with access. So I want everyone to be thinking over the next couple of months in terms of fevers, respiratory symptoms, um, as we get more and more um, cases of respiratory infections within primary care, um, we now know that emergency is overwhelmed. There was another code red within emergency um, settings yesterday. Um, and so a lot of people will either be waiting for a long time in emergency um, if we don't help them to access other ways of assessment. So thinking about what are our offerings, what's in our community and how we actually can communicate this better. Um, and so I think thinking through that, thinking through as a practice, thinking through as an area or region, thinking through with other practices in your area. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So in terms of our priority groups at the moment, we know that children don't have as good vaccination rates um, as adults as yet. They started more recently, but there is also a degree of hesitancy um, in some parents to access COVID vaccination. So I think it's a conversation that we can have with parents um, to help reassure but also looking at that individual level, uh, making sure that all additional risk factors are managed uh, and making sure that patients do know where to seek care. Um, thinking about telehealth options and the acceptability within sort of paediatric patients. We did a lot of work on that in ECHOES last year. Uh, um, and so that, and the year before, and so that's something, again, to revisit, thinking about your patient population, what's going to be suitable for telehealth, what's not. And then at the clinic and local levels, so where people are going to be able to be assessed locally, um, what are your protocols for um, triaging? So thinking about all of those things, what's in your community? Um, and I'll just go on to the next slide. So. In terms of other things in management that we can look at, um, just being aware, having everything ready in the back of your mind so that when you do have conditions that present, how are you going to manage it with medication? Um, and I think one of the things we want to flag for people is um, in aged care facility outbreaks or disability care outbreaks, um, there is going to be a lot more sort of reliance now on general practice as a point for provision and prescription of antivirals, whereas we may have been quite separated from the aged care responses previously. So thinking about um, what you need to do there. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So I just wanted to finish off with the only child to have ever um, rapid antigen tested positive during an echo. Um, so this is a picture of my child who was a rat who had a positive rat. And just talking about how that testing and guidance looks in reality to lead into non-session. So um, child one, who was my child, um, he had an exposure during sort of a large outbreak in his childcare centre, but the exposure was more than seven days ago. Um, he had no other exposures known. And he started with his first ever routine surveillance rat test for kinder with a positive. Um, and thinking about that, is there really no epidemiological risk? Um, 
so it was a bit confused. Ultimately, I had looked at that and thought, well, you know, he's asymptomatic. There was a decent outbreak happening at the time. And I was happy enough that um, with 51% of kids in a recent study being asymptomatic with COVID infections, I sort of thought, well, maybe his infection was earlier. Um, there was a bit of confusion from sort of communications with the public health unit in which they thought that his kinder, they wanted to rule out his kinder being associated with a school outbreak in the same town because he attends kinder in a different town to where the other outbreak was. Um, they requested that he had a PCR, which was done at 49 hours rather than 48 hours because that's the access that we have in this town in terms of timing. Um, so he tested negative on that PCR test. However, child two, who was a child who he played with on the day prior to his positive rat test, became unwell 48 hours later with fever, vomiting. He was rat negative, um, but became PCR positive. And so it's just sort of flagging that, you know, while we do have these sort of protocols and testing sort of guidance overlying, it's often up to us to put some context around things. So my theory on this was that he actually was exposed more than seven days ago, probably had an asymptomatic infection and was picked up on rat positive test at the end of that. But um, yes, it definitely disturbed my concentration for that echo. And with that, I'll hand back to Bianca and Norm to sort of go through some of the actual logistics and science behind our testing. Kate, you were seamless as always. No one picked up a thing. <laughs> There was a lot of swearing going on in the background. <laughs> no, you can't do this. That's it. And it, was, it, was, it was one that was on paediatrics at the time. So it I was a paediatric presentation. That's it. I think you were texting me in the background and we just did a bit of tap dancing. No one knew any better. Anyway, thanks. All right, over to you, Nom. Thank you. And Norm, I know you've had your own tap dancing happening in the background uh, this week, so we're really grateful for you. No worries. <laughs> Hopefully you can see my screen, yes, my slides coming you. up. Perfect. Yep. Um, so thank you, Bianca, for already introducing me. Um, I'm Norma Toby. I'm an infectious diseases physician with the Barwon Southwest Public Health Unit, and I also work as a clinical microbiologist with ACL. So I'm giving this talk with my pathologist hat on, but also as a clinician in ID with a public health hat as well. So hopefully covering everything. Um, so um, just to mention, you know, what happens in terms of diagnostics in a pandemic. When COVID arrived on our doorsteps at the beginning of 2020, we didn't have any diagnostic tests um, for it, basically. Um, that said, we were able to rapidly develop various testing modalities, particularly PCR testing, which is, you know, the, the most important. Um, and importantly, although it's a new RNA virus, we understand RNA viruses very well. We know about the human, human coronaviruses. We know how to um, do PCRs, serology, um, antigen tests, et cetera, for those sorts of organisms. So it wasn't exactly like starting from scratch. Um, so, you know, sometimes people have concerns that these tests were developed very quickly all of a sudden for a new virus, but it's all based on very standardized methods that we already know very well. Um, one of the important things, though, is that all tests that we do in pathology go through a, an approval process through the TGA um, and also a validation process where you sort of, you know, give the, the tests a, a go in the lab to see how they'll actually 
do clinically um, in terms of sensitivity, specificity, etc. Um, and importantly, a lot of these tests didn't go through that process just because of it being a pandemic and needing to get on top of things very quickly. So I thought I'd talk about nucleic acid testing first because that is our gold standard for viral detection. Um, we all talk about PCR. PCR is one of the methods of nucleic acid testing, but importantly, there are other ways that we can do nucleic acid testing. One of those being transcription mediated amplification or TMA. Um, and a lot of our labs use what is called the Panther, um, which uses this method. It probably isn't very important to understand the differences between PCR and TMA, um, but just important to know that there are other methods other than PCR. Um, there are lots of different assays that are available to do COVID testing. It's not just one assay, one instrument. And the reason for this is that COVID testing obviously just had to be applied to the equipment and the assays that we already have. And various labs would have various different um, machinery for different reasons. It's basically like, you know, a washing machine. Everyone has different brands. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other necessarily. Um, there are also various gene targets that each of the assays would use. So a lot of the time we get questions from people about, can you tell me, you know, earlier on an Omicron, can you tell us if there was an S gene dropout? The S gene is not necessarily the target on every um, assay that's done. So that's an, another important thing to know. There are also rapid PCR methods. So I'm not talking about rapid antigen testing, I'm talking about the rapid PCRs. And these are sort of the ones that we use in point of care settings. So for example, at Geelong Hospital, we have a Kyostat that lives in the emergency department that is basically able to produce a PCR result within an hour or two. There's obviously cost implications of that, et cetera, why you can't do that all the time necessarily, um, but there are those options and there are other instruments like the Gene Expert and the Cobus Liat that you may have heard of. PCR testing importantly is very sensitive and very specific. So analytical um, assessment would be close to 100%. Obviously that can drop off um, in the clinical space because you start to see things like um, collection methods, et cetera, affecting um, the outcome of your tests. But overall, very sensitive and very specific. It's important that you test the right specimens though to get those um, good results. And we know that the nasopharyngeal swabs or nose and throat swabs combined are the best um, specimens. When you start to do things like oral swabs and throat swabs, which I'll you know, show you some results on that, um, you start to get a drop off of your sensitivity. It's also important to avoid um, doing non-respiratory specimens, what we call non-valid um, sample types. Every so often we get a request that someone has presented with, I don't know, peritonitis after recently having COVID, can we just test it to see if it's COVID? Um, it's basically that rubbish in, rubbish out um, phenomenon. Um, if a sample type has not been validated with the tests, which non-respiratory specimens have not, um, you can't really you know, guarantee the result that you're getting out is going to be a useful result. Um, importantly, the TGA are undertaking a post-market review of all the PCR tests that we have, that we use. There have been cons some concerns that maybe they're not picking up some of the novel variants um, uh, as well. Um, and as a result, TGA is getting us to do a, an assessment of all of that. And basically any test that is currently being used is able to detect the current variants of concern. If there are concerns that they are not, um, those tests are no longer allowed to be used in pathology and would not be used in pathology. Um, so just to go through some of the sensitivity uh, um, findings from the different specimen types. So this is a, sorry, this is a um, 
systematic review and meta-analysis published in the JCM that looked at different specimen types in, com in comparison to nasopharyngeal swabs. And basically it found that nasal throat and saliva swabs were suboptimal. And you can see the sensitivity there sort of, you know, in the 80, 80s range. Whereas if you do a combined nose and throat swab, the sensitivity of that is very much so equivalent to a nasopharyngeal swab, 97%. So essentially telling us what we know that we should really be using those sample types. Um, this is another uh, meta-analysis and systematic review that looked exactly at the same thing. And again, nasal swabs, throat swabs, and saliva, not as good. Combination nose and throat, as good as nasopharyngeal swab. Um, and importantly, they also found that the throat swabs had significantly low positive predictive value. So basically a positive test, um, not very helpful when you're using throat swabs. Um, they also looked at um, healthcare workers and self-collection and they found that there was similar performance in that regard. So that kind of helps us in that regard of um, it may be possible for us to start to move towards um, self-collecting swabs because it seems that they perform as well. So in terms of nucleic acid testing, I'm sure we've all heard about CT values. So I thought I'd touch on that and where it is useful. So basically a CT value um, refers to um, the number of cycles that you need to amplify the amount of RNA that you have in your sample. And basically it's quite a straightforward link that if you don't have very much RNA in your sample originally, it's going to take a lot of amplification um, cycles for you to get your curve up to that threshold. And so you'll get a very high CT value. And once you start to go beyond, you know, sort of CT values of 40, this is probably not a very useful um, result. This is, there's probably not very much RNA there. Um, if you have plenty of um, RNA, it doesn't take very much for you to get that ampli amplification to reach your threshold. So you have those very low CT values. Um, essentially, this is something that we use in public health and infectious diseases, not something that we necessarily put on reports for every patient because it's not relevant most of the time. Um, but this is something that we'd use, for example, when we're concerned about a false positive. So someone who had a screening test, for example, that's come back positive, they're asymptomatic, is it actually a real positive? Um, and we'd look at the CT values and if the CT values were in the ranges of, you know, the high 30s, we'd probably recommend a repeat test and often would find it's negative. It's also important in that reinfection space where someone has had COVID, developed some new symptoms, gets a PCR, it's positive. Is it true reinfection and you'd expect low CT values in that situation? Or is it just ongoing shedding from their original infection where you'd expect to see very high CT values and maybe you should be thinking about it being some other infection, for example, and doing a um, multiplex PCR. So I thought I'd touch very briefly on genomic sequencing. I don't want to say too much about it. Essentially, it's a very specialized test only done at reference laboratories. Um, and based on how genomics is done, um, and the, you know, what's involved with it, it only gives us retrospective information. So it basically will always take in current, in the current situation, at least a couple of weeks for you to get a result. And this is not just because of COVID activity. This is pre-COVID when we use sequencing for other reasons. It's just the nature of the test. Um, but you do from genomics get an identification of the, the virus and um, specific mutations that your virus from that person might have. Um, and that's the, uh, this is the only way that we can get definitive information about the circulating variants. So we often get asked, um, this person that had a PCR, 
um, is it Omicron, is it Delta? You cannot tell that from your um, you know, standard PCR test. The only way to get this definitive information is from your um, genotyping, um, which as I said, is not information you get there and there. It's very much so retrospective information. Um, genomic sequencing is also how we can look at sort of um, phylogenetic information that uh, fine-tuned epidemiological information, looking at genetic linkages, chains of transmission, um, and this is also how surveillance is done. I really don't want to talk about wastewater surveillance in detail because um, it's there's a lot that goes into it, um, and I would definitely not be doing it any justice, but essentially the crux of it is that it's sampling of wastewater um, to look for what virus is being shed into the waste, basically. And we're able to get very good epidemiological information on what variants are circulating and particularly where those different variants are circulating. The overall summary of what we're seeing at the moment from the wastewater surveillance is that we are seeing a significant rise in the um, percentage of BA2. Um, and that's something that will continue to be surveyed to give us that information. Um, in terms of some of the limitations of nucleic acid testing when you're in a pandemic, this is what we saw in December. So it's uh, currently, you know, 24 hour turnaround time to get your results. But obviously in December, that was not quite the case. And the reason is you rely on a, a, a lab to do these tests and you need the workforce, you need the expertise. So it's not every scientist that is trained in molecular, for example. Um, and there was not, you know, moving into the pandemic, a sudden increase in the number of molecular scientists. Um, and that certainly hasn't changed over the last two years. So importantly, you need the people to be able to do the test. And you also need the infrastructure in your labs to be able to do it. And again, that did not dramatically change when we moved into the pandemic. There's also the cost issue. Um, PCR testing needs to be funded by someone and it is expensive. And also we know in December that people started to um, uh, not be able to access PCR testing. So that led us to rapid antigen testing. Um, so obviously, as we know, rapid antigen testing detects um, viral proteins or antigens. Um, it's a point of care test. And so it does what a point of care test is meant to be. It's meant to be cheap, which it is. Um, you don't need a laboratory. You don't need a specialist person to run the test. Um, it's very easy to do. Um, you get rapid results and um, uh, on the spot. So basically, you can take the test to wherever the person is, no issues there. Um, there are several assays that have been approved by the TGA. Um, and importantly, the TGA requires you to report um, a certain sensitivity and specificity for your test to be allowed to be used. And all of the manufacturers report sensitivity above 80% and specificity above 99%. But importantly, these are not independent evaluations of, of the assays. Um, this is what the, the manufacturer initially does just to get it out on the market. So currently the TGA has requested that all these rapid antigen tests have post-market surveillance um, where they're basically tested in a laboratory situation against our gold standard, the PCR, to actually get a good sense of what the true sensitivity specificity is of these assays. And if there are any you know, concerning ones from that process, they may lose their TGA approval. Um, and importantly, this will also look at the variants of concern. So a lot of people are concerned about the rapid antigen tests not detecting um, Omicron, for example, and this will all be looked at from this post-market um, assessment by TGA. So what is the sensitivity of rats testing? So this is a Cochrane review that looked at this. 
And basically we know that um, you need to have uh, symptomatic people to get good results. So essentially um, the sensitivity is 72, seven, was 72% in symptomatic people and that dropped off to 58.1% in asymptomatic people. The sensitivity is best in that first week after symptom onset at 78.3%. Still obviously not you know, that close to 100% that we would like um, that PCR testing is. Um, and importantly, you get a higher sensitivity with your lower CT values. So when there's lots of virus around, um, very good sensitivity. So if your CT value on a PCR would have been 25 um, or less, the sensitivity is uh, pretty good at 94.5. But when you have your higher CT values, um, they found that the sensitivity was only about 40.7%. Overall, the specificity though um, was quite good. One of the concerns um, when this systematic review was done was that there was a lot of bias in a lot of the studies. And that's what I've been talking about, that these are the manufacturer's studies for them to be able to get their assays TGA approved um, rather than independent evaluations. So it's really going to be important to see what those independent evaluations find. Um, so the other thing to think about is um, positive predictive value and negative predictive value of tests. Um, which is influenced by the prevalence of the disease in the population. So rapid antigen test is, was great in the situation of December, January, when obviously the prevalence of COVID was very high because in that situation, you don't get as many false results. So this table um, just outlines, and this is taken from the College of Pathologists, um, outlines in that top row when you have you know, pretty high prevalence, so 20% prevalence, the sensitivity of the test and specificity um, haven't changed. So 70% sens sensitivity and pretty good specificity. The positive predictive value um, is quite high, 97.2, and negative predictive value is 93. So overall, you have a reasonable test. But that said, even in that high prevalence situation, you still will have about three in 100 um, false positives and about seven in 100 false negatives. It's not that much and probably something that we can accept in an, um, a sort of pandemic setting, but to think about those you know, few people that have those false results that may have some impact on their care. Um, but now when you uh, have much lower prevalence, which we might move into at some point, or rather we hope to move into at some point, um, there's significant issues there with the positive predictive value of the test. So basically um, your positive predictive value at that point will drop to 1.4% which is really quite unacceptable. So we're basically saying that of 507 people that have a test, um, 500 of those will be false positives. And I think we can all accept that that would not be acceptable to anyone. Um, whilst the negative predictive value is um, very good in that situation, um, the sensitivity of the test is only 70%. So you still have three in 10 false negatives. So again, there are those few people that are impacted. So really things to think about, and especially as we um, have less COVID around, um, things for us to consider when we're doing rapid antigen testing. Nom, that kind of information is useful for us mm. as GPs, understanding a prevalence. Do, mm. what, we, what are you kind of uh, either in your waters or do you know what it is at the moment, roughly? Where are we sitting on that range? So we're probably in that still in that high prevalence situation because we are starting to see our cases go up again. I don't have the exact numbers. No. Um, I don't know if anyone does, but we're still in the, in the enough circulation for our rapid antigen test to be reasonably useful. Okay. Um, we haven't gone to second table will be when 
COVID is really not a part of our day-to-day -day lives. Okay, because I think that the you know there's probably we've probably been on down on the downside of a wave and we're heading on mm, the upside we're heading again. Back up. But yes. I think there's been a bit of um, you know people doubting yeah you know, the population are not relying on doubting rats as rats. much yeah, yeah exactly yeah. okay but we yeah. need to keep reinforcing yeah and I'll talk about some of the situations where to confirm a rat basically yeah thank you. Um, so some of the limitations are obviously the sensitivity, especially in your asymptomatic people. Um, it's a self-test. So, you know, even when you have a proper PCR test done by a healthcare worker, if it's not done properly, you won't get the right result. So if people out in the community are just testing themselves, you've got no idea what their technique is. We don't know how they're keeping these kits. Are they being kept, you know, in a sweltering hot cupboard somewhere? And so that's affecting the, the utility of the test. Um, are they interpreting the results correctly? There's often, you know, as I said, I'm in isolation at the moment. My first rat test was a very, very faint line. And I feel there are a lot of people that probably would have chucked that or here's a negative. Um, there are all those, those factors to take in when people are, are testing themselves. Um, and also you lose, lose that epidemiological information that people are just doing a rat test at home. What is the context of them doing that rat test? Um, did they truly have an exposure? or was there no risk at all and it's a false positive, for example. Um, as I said, there are lots of different products um, and all of them have not undergone this rigorous um, across the board evaluation, but hopefully we're going to get on top of that. So when to confirm a rat, there are some points when I would definitely confirm a rat. So for example, if someone is rat negative, but symptomatic, um, I think that is, uh, uh, definitely something to consider. That said, it could be something else. It could be another virus. Um, but if you're symptomatic, the take home message is just because your rat test is negative doesn't mean you do not have COVID or anything else infectious and you should go about your life. It means let's think a bit harder about those symptoms. The second uh, situation would be of those that are rat positive, but asymptomatic, and there is no sort of epidemiological risk. There hasn't really been an exposure. Um, that said, the way that things are going in Victoria at the moment, we all have epidemiological risk. Um, so, you know, that makes that part a bit difficult to fine tune. But essentially, if you don't have symptoms and you have a positive rat test, that's when to consider doing a PCR to confirm. There's also the issue of reinfections. So we're going to start to see people that have had COVID um, maybe two, three months ago. They might be on the border of that cutoff for when they um, don't need to be testing that eight-week mark. Um, and they have symptoms again, and you do a PCR and it's positive. It would be important in that situation when they are within that period, particularly, or right at the border, to have a look at those CT values, for example, because it could just be continued shedding from their original infection, and now they have some other viral infection, for example. So that's um, a situation where you wouldn't want to be relying on just a rat test being positive. You'd probably want to confirm that. There are other considerations to make, and these are just my personal thoughts on when you might consider a rat, and this definitely um, needs to be taken into the context of availability, et cetera. So for example, in an outbreak, especially now when we're seeing outbreaks of COVID and influenza at the same time, you possibly want to confirm that initial index case that's rat positive with a PCR to be 100% certain that you're dealing with COVID and not influenza with a false positive rat, for example. But again, this is definitely not guidance that has come from the Department of Health as yet. Um, so these are just my thoughts. Um, now, in not, terms um, of, oh, hmm. sorry. 
no, no oh, sorry i was just going to say just just looking at the time i'm just doing a bit of a time check sorry. Yeah. no that's okay not a problem it's 8 17 um we've got a couple of little cases in mm. there and i know you've still got some more content to come and we've got lots of questions coming in the chat yeah. um well i'm wondering what would you like to do would you like to wrap up the didactic or would you like to just take a yeah. little pause and we'll quickly scoop up a few questions and then continue yeah. on yeah we can do that we can take some okay. questions yeah all right, I'm going to try and group the multiplex PCR. So I know we've mm. been through there and there's been a few answers in the chat, everyone. So thank you. So multiplex PCR, at the moment we're saying that um, if you're symptomatic for flu, you can get a Medicare rebated multiplex PCR. Um, however, um, there are some questions about what about in high risk settings? What's the status on that? Um, and at the moment, we're recognising that some of the state testing places are only doing COVID, even if someone's got epidemiological yeah. risk for flu and symptoms for yeah. flu. So could yeah. we just quickly do a quick um, tidy up on that? Yeah. So in terms of why the, the testing centres are not doing multiplex testing, I think that's completely a funding issue. Um, and I heard, have heard that that might change. I, I don't have any further information as to if that will change, when that will change, but that certainly is something that is in consideration. The respiratory multiplex though is a bulk build test. So for example, at the public health unit, when we have had these reinfections flagged with us, we have gone on to add on a multiplex um, and that's able to be Medicare bulk build for, for anyone that has a Medicare card. Anyone who has a Medicare symptoms. card, if they have symptoms. So we've got to if specify, and just to yeah. answer Jane's question, we're saying yeah. a, a respiratory multiplex PCR and pop yeah. in the clinical information that they've got symptoms yeah. and yeah. pop in clinical information if they've got any COVID epidemiology. Yes, exactly. And if you're wanting both a COVID PCR and a respiratory multiplex PCR, both of those tests need to be requested separately. Separately requested. And I, exactly. and I guess the thing that I'm just thinking, Norm, I know when I used to work mm. in the SDI clinic and we used to, you know, we went from that place where we, we were only ordering, say, chlamydia PCR for, for young women, but we were doing gono and chlamydia for men. And then things changed. We saw more gono in young women. Um, we started kind of doing both. But the word from the lab was, well, we run a multiplex um, so we're doing it all anyway. Yeah, it, mm, yeah, it's a bit respiratory, slightly different. So the issue is, as I said, there are lots of different assays that will do um, respiratory testing and COVID testing. So there may be a situation where I, I am able to do an assay that has COVID and everything else, but there will be a situation where I have to just based on what that instrument has taken up doing mm. to do the COVID test on a different platform from the respiratory multiplex test. And it may be a completely different scientists doing them both at the same time so mm. it's purely just a workflow issue it's a workflow that we just issue. need to know what tests you need and yeah. if it is covid as well as respiratory multiplex to know that information separately and it's just for us workflow wise to work out yeah. how to get those both done for you in a timely way that's it. And I think we've got those, I mean, sometimes it's really tricky, isn't it? Because we're trying to let patients know about whether they're going to get hit with a Medicare bill. And one of the things I know, yeah. for example, I know I'm tangenting, but mycoplasma, I'd often say um, in the clinical notes, uh, multiplex PCR, uh, query mycoplasma, but I wouldn't order a mycoplasma PCR because that would be a private test. Whereas if I wrote yeah. multiplex PCR, you just happen to do it. And I'm just telling you that I happen to be interested in it. Yeah. And so yeah. it was Medicare rebated. Like yeah. it's a funny little workaround. Yeah. But yeah, I yeah. guess um, mo most clinical information as possible helps you know what exactly. to report. Exactly. That's right. What we request um, is what we get. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 And two swabs is the other thing that is helpful for us. Two when you swabs, are asking, yes. not, we, do, we can work with one, 
but again, as a workflow issue and trying yes. to get you the results as quickly as possible. Yes. If you are wanting COVID and respiratory multiplex, two swabs is always more help- okay. is always helpful. Yeah, that's really great. Great practical tip. How long does a PCR yeah. test uh, t- stay positive for COVID? So can't be definitive, but we know that it may stay positive for weeks, months, particularly in your immunosuppressed hosts that continue to shed. Um, we don't know or we don't think that is necessarily infective virus necessarily. Um, the only people that should continue to have um, PCRs done, you know, to exclude whether they're still infectious or not are those immunosuppressed hosts. So healthy people who don't have symptoms, who've recovered from COVID, we should be doing repeat testing on. Okay, thanks. This is a question I just want to round up around uh, rats and how we talked about uh, mm. PCR being better if you pop it in every orifice. Um, yeah. Rats, um, however, could we just do that? Could you just pop it in every orifice to increase the um, no. sensitivity yeah. or is there something yeah. about the buffer that we should just remind people? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically that issue that the manufacturers designed the rats um, and the buffer for those specific rats for a specific type of specimen. So whatever specimen the, the manufacturer has said that one should be used for is what it should be used for. There are people okay. that have looked at does doing a throat swab before um, doing the nose swab for some of the nasal rats increase sensitivity. There are some suggestions, you know, that that might be effective, but there is definitely no proper evaluation of that. So until there's a proper evaluation of that and a suggestion from the manufacturer that that is the right thing to do, I wouldn't do that. Okay, thanks. Uh, Alison Miller, I just want to clarify your question because I'm not sure where, what, what you were responding to. Can we request a PCR and CT level when considering reinfection? CT you... values for reinfection. Yeah. So, yeah, I would do that in, in consultation with the public health unit. You certainly can ask us for CT values um, and we can give you that information. Um, and we certainly have done that a few times. And often, you know, if it is those very high CT values, as I said, and someone that's recently had COVID, you might consider that it may be a false, um, just continued shedding and consider maybe doing a multiplex if they have symptoms or if they don't have symptoms, maybe it's just a false result altogether and repeat the PCR. Okay, um, Noam, we've got a quick uh, family who've just tested positive in their household and I've asked mm. the crew to provide their good expert GP advice so yeah. um, positive rat in my household today do the rest of us do a rat or a pcr so at the moment the the guidance is that you know we have enough prevalence or high enough prevalence for us to be using rat testing basically yeah. um, obviously if you do your rat tests and there's a concern about the rat test it's negative you've got symptoms go ahead and do a pcr um, but rat tests at the moment are thought to be adequate and, and I guess the key thing we've, we've been always talking about is, um, you know, you're all in ISO now anyway. Yeah. Um, if you do your rat today and even if you're asymptomatic and it's positive, well, the clock goes on for you, right? So there's no need yeah. to delay that, that clock. Yeah. You want that clock on as soon as possible and a rat's a handy way of doing it. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. We'll leave it this morning with the PHN update. Over to you, Naomi. Uh, just an update on the JEV. Um, there's an email address there if you have any question. Otherwise, all information can be found on our website. Uh, and the JSPECT is in short supply. So please, if you're trying to order it, you need to email immunisation at health.vic.gov.au. Um, 
winter dose for, for RACs. Uh, expect uh, residential aged care facilities to, to be contacting your practices to provide the winter doses. Uh, that is part of the instruction from the federal government. Uh, so expect them to be contacting you as well as us. Um, reminder of the living with COVID funding uh, and testing uh, is eight weeks post-infection uh, for retesting uh, and requirement for re-isolation, uh, which is a change from the 30 days um, which I think has been spoken about. And that's it for me. Great. Thanks, everyone. Well, we're off for a month now. So um, enjoy your um, next little while. Please evaluate us. Um, and uh, uh, happy all of the various different spiritual and um, religious festivals to those of you who um, observe um, and also to those of you who might take time off over um, this period. Do enjoy. There's where all the resources are if you miss us. Um, and um, do get in touch. Let us know what you'd like to see. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I'm off camping. Uh, call me back with some interesting ideas for um, echoes. Otherwise, I'm likely to disappear off into the mental health space. So if you want to keep seeing COVID echo, let us know what you want to hear about. If you're interested in mental health space as well, do let us know because that's going to be really interesting in regards to planning. Um, take care, everyone, and we'll see you in a month's time. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.